Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. Hello, this is Brian Auten, and I'm here with Chad Gross. Chad, before we rebooted the podcast two years ago, because it's been about two years of podcasting now. Wow. Prior to that reboot, there were 185 episodes, but now we've reached episode 100 of the reboot. So that is a milestone. A milestone. Excellent. We've made it. Yes. So we are run out of stuff to talk about, and uh, (laughs) we're going to go home now. (laughs) It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. So, uh, dear listener, thank you for sticking with us. If, if you're a new listener, yes. um, uh, welcome. And if you have been with us from the beginning, great. Um, we would welcome any emails to us at podcast at apologetics315.com to celebrate with us. Send us a, a message and tell us what has moved your heart the most listening to the podcast. So what have we got planned for today, Chad, just, you know, to celebrate? Well, as listeners, uh, regular listeners know, we both are fans of the original 1984 Ghostbusters film. And so today, what we are going to be doing is sharing some of our favorite quotes from the 1984 Ghostbusters. And then we will be showing how those quotes teach us things about apologetics. And so, you know, if we had to title this, it could be something like what we can learn about apologetics from the Ghostbusters. Yeah. And so I'm thinking now that somebody might be listening and they might be thinking, I've never even seen Ghostbusters, which I will forgive you for that. I am a Christian, Uh, but you haven't seen Ghostbusters. You're not as familiar with it. And but that's okay because the tips will still pertain to you and hopefully be helpful. And also we are going to be playing the quotes. And so perhaps if you haven't seen what I deem is the greatest comedic film ever made, it will entice you to watch it, even though, of course, we do not endorse every second of the content. Yes, Uh, it's still overall is quite enjoyable. Yeah. So a couple of notes for listeners. Normally we kind of get down to uh, the interview and we interview someone or we're talking specifically about a subject. This is not the episode where we're going for that goal. We're going for just talking and we're basically forcing an apologetic meaning onto the text. <laughs> we're we're uh, we're eisegeting Ghostbusters <laughs> to make it apologetic. We want to take a moment and thank every one of our Patreons right now. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, so, um... Easily the greatest, easily the greatest song ever made for a movie. Easily. uh, Well, no, I don't know. I don't know. I I, I don't know. Okay, so uh, shall I just pick one out of the hat? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay, all right. Yeah. Give me a number. Oh, yeah. We have seven quotes we're going to give you guys today. And, all, uh, right, all right. All right. So we'll pick a number between one and seven. Uh, I'm going to go with three. Go get her, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> all 
All right, context on this. Yeah, so for those never, who never don't take have... a quote out of context. <laughs> I was gonna say, come on, man. So I was gonna give the context is is when Peter's kind of boldly saying that uh, Gozer's gonna have to get by them, and they're all like, "Yeah, that's right." And there's this kind of momentary pause, and then Peter just says, "Go get her, Ray." And uh, of course, Ray's a little shocked, and then he goes through his <laughs> wonderful little speech, which I will not recreate here. But um, one of the things I thought about with this quote is that um, is sometimes when we're in a, an apologetics conversation, uh, we, we want to go after the person, right? Uh, it, it can turn into being right about the argument. And instead of listening to the person, attempting to understand what they believe, asking them great questions and really assessing where they are, we just want to, you know, go get our rag. We want to go after the person and we want to kind of slam dunk the argument. And we forget that we're supposed to be trying to, we're supposed to be trying to win people and not try to win arguments. And so we want to, of course, present thoughtful arguments and we want to challenge people with good evidence. But at the same time, we want to do it in a manner that is inviting and, of course, promotes more conversation. And if we come at somebody with the kind of go getter ray, especially if they're not somebody who typically reads uh, philosophy and theology and science and, and kind of the things that we engage with with apologetics, it can just seem completely overwhelming, like we're coming at the person in, in a way that we're attacking them. Yeah. Good points. Uh, when I heard that quote, I, I immediately thought, well, well, it harkens back to the beginning of the movie because this quote happens at the end. And at right. the very, very beginning, they, they the first encounter is, oh, what are we supposed to do? And then Ray's like, oh, oh, yeah. he's so excited. He's like, oh, I know what we'll do. I know. Stay close. Stay close. I, and then he's yeah. like, get her. And uh, yeah. they, then they, they totally get defeated. They run away and they like tail between their legs running out of the, uh, you know, library. And then we'll uh, get back to you. <laughs> and then and then Venkman's all like, oh, that was your whole plan. Get her. <laughs> and, you know, he had no plan. And uh, I suppose right. at the, then at, at the end of the movie, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do to confront the big boss. And so it's like, yeah, I know. Go get her, Ray. So like, OK. And in a sense, it's poetic, because remember when they they meet the initial ghost in the library that they, they Ray says, you know, one of us should actually try to talk to it. And then Egon and, and Ray kind of slowly look at Peter and Peter rolls his eyes and he's the one that has to go uh, yeah. and kind of <laughs> confront the first ghost. So it's kind of a great payback for peter too that peter's like go get her ray like i'm not yeah. getting into that again one thing does come to mind a scripture popped in my mind just popped in there um, um and it's proverbs 24 uh sorry proverbs 26 17 it says like a one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel not his own and this mm. kind of like I, I always thought of that proverb like someone coming along and Maybe they see people talking and then they just want to jump in. And it's like, well, you know, it's not always your, your, our place. You know, if we see people interacting online or something, it's just to jump in and say, oh, I'm going to take over the conversation or, or I know what the answer is to this. And so you see a lot of people piling on in online discussions and things like that where like, you that's know what, you're point. not helping. You're actually making it worse by jumping in here. So that's one thought. And then the other thought was First Peter 315 always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have so you know the go-getter ray is basically be ready because and don't go in unprepared that that's kind of 
what I would want to encourage like people that. with, you know, as a hopping off point. And that's kind of one of the fun things about the film is that, especially in the first Ghostbusters, where you're, you're essentially, they really don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, we handle this kind of thing all the time when in reality, they've never handled anything. And uh-huh. so that that's part of the fun of it is they really don't know what they are doing and they have to they have to venture out there and act like they know what they're doing, even uh-huh. when they don't, which is part of the comedic fun. All right. Well, I'm going to choose the next one and then I'll uh, tell you what I think of it. <laughs> that's a big Twinkie. <laughs> that's a big Twinkie. Right. So oh, uh, here's the context. There's this containment unit for holding all the ghosts and it's getting full. And uh, so they're worried about it. And they ask Egon, well, what's going on with the containment unit? And he gives this huge, like detailed illustration of of all or detailed account of all the, you know, telekinetic activity and how big it is and how terrible it is. And then they're like, uh, well, imagine that this is a Twinkie. This is the normal size of uh, activity. And well, this would be right. a Twinkie the size of, you know, and he gives us huge measurements of this Twinkie. So right. he says, that's a big Twinkie. So the point is, we all remember that because it was a really great illustration of a complex thing. And mm. so when it comes to talking to people about the gospel or persuading someone about or with an argument, Sometimes the simpler illustrations that are memorable are more effective. So if someone's being honest, sometimes saying something simple, even though it's not going to be philosophically airtight, might be better Mm -hmm. than giving someone a philosophical argument. I mean, if I'm talking to my kids and I'm trying to say, hey, you know, look at look at the design of this painting. Is there an artist? You think that it? there's an artist behind this painting or there's a designer behind this design that might be better than trying to give them an argument, you know, give an illustration that is, is memorable. So in this case, you know, the Twinkie thing, no, that's a big Twinkie. This kind of would be my encouragement to people that like, keep it simple and keep it memorable. You don't want to downgrade the quality of your reasoning and sacrifice that for an illustration, but you do want to have a good illustration that is going to be memorable, you know? Yeah, I think that's great. And I, I mean, I think of and, and that allows you to to kind of have that goal of if I was explaining something, what, whatever the concept might be to to a child, um, how would I explain it to them in a way that they could grasp it? Because if you can explain it to, say, a 10 year old, you can most likely explain it to most anyone. And mm-hmm. also, I think there's a good argument to be made that if you truly understand it, you should be able to do that. Uh, I, I think of when uh, I used to teach the uh, Kalam cosmological argument and I would kind of just lay out all the scientific evidence. And mm-hmm. for people who aren't familiar with that, it can be overwhelming. And so one of the things I would do is is one way that we know the universe is finite or hasn't always been here is that it's running out of usable energy. Right. And so if it if it had always been here, uh, it would be out of energy at this point. And obviously it's still here. And so the, the amount of energy is, is finite. And so I've, I've used the illustration with people of, you know, the old kind of the wind up car that, that used to yeah. be a thing. And if you wind it up and you let it go, it's, it's eventually going to run out of energy because it only has a finite amount of um, energy stored up. And in a sense the universe is like that. Yes, indeed. So I get to pick the next one, right? All right, Chad, you're up. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Oh, yeah. yeah, So so I have to give a little background here. When I was a kid and 
I watched Ghostbusters for the first time. I remember just, at, you know, when you're a boy and you watch a film and a lot of people fell in love with Sylvester Stallone and wanted to be Rambo or uh, Clint Eastwood and wanted to be a cowboy or something. For me, it was Pete Bankman. And uh, that the, I just loved his humor. I love the way he went about things, which you can judge me however you want for that listener. However, I love this line because, of course, the context is, is that uh, <laughs> the, the Alice at the library has seen a ghost and Peter is asking her a series of questions to try to ascertain her mental health, which, of course, you would which makes sense in the context that she sees something that obviously is incredibly bizarre and he's trying to make sure that is is this somebody that we're dealing with that kind of has all their ducks in a row and at one point one of the gentlemen that work at the library takes issue with a question that Bankman asks and leans over and says what does that got to do with it and Peter just casually leans over and says back off man I'm a scientist and there's a few things here that this brings to mind is 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 first of all there are people in relation to the science and faith debate that do take this approach of almost like they are a type of clergy, if you will, and yeah. they are scientists and they have the final say. Some would say that science is the ultimate way to truth. Some would say it's the most superior way to truth. And obviously no one listening would be crazy enough to disagree that science has given us many wonderful things. But of course, just appealing to the fact that you're a scientist as if that gives you the bottom line on in the argument, I think is wrong because as it's been demonstrated by a lot of great thinkers is that, you know, science, you can't do science without philosophy. There are presuppositions that are philosophical that you have to take on before you can even do science. And so in order to be an effective science, I think that you do need to have a grasp on at least basic philosophy. And so I think that we need to be careful as apologists when somebody comes along and says, well, I have a degree in X, whatever that scientific discipline is. And, that, and you know, they kind of drop that out there as if to say, so you better back off or so you yeah. better listen to me. I think there's nothing wrong with saying back to them, well, I think it's great you were able to achieve that degree. And I certainly think I could learn from you. But could you explain to me why my argument's wrong or could you explain what, what's your argument? And so don't allow them to just kind of pull the science card and get out of jail free, if you will, yeah, when, yeah. It comes mm -hmm. to, when it comes to intellectual debate. The other thing I'd say, and then I'll, of course, let you say it, talk, is that I've also seen it when in debates, and I'm thinking particularly of the debate with Braxton Hunter and Matt Dillahunty, which which I think is one of the better debates I've ever seen Dillahunty engage in, to be honest. And uh, Braxton just did an outstanding job in that debate. But they're they're talking about cosmology, and in and Braxton is laying out some of the evidence that the universe began to exist. And instead of engaging with that evidence and, and dealing with the question of, well, how do you think the universe began? Or do you think the universe is finite? Or do you think that it is um, eternal? Dillahunty simply kind of hand waves and is like, well, I'm not a scientist. You mm -hmm. know, so so it's we also have to be careful of not only the back off man, I'm a scientist, so I have final say, but we also have to be leery of the person who tries to dodge an argument and say, well, I'm not a scientist or neither of you, neither are you. Well, I mean, I'm not a pharmacist, but I can still make some pretty decent decisions based on evidence about whether or not I'm going to take a medication. 
And so Braxton rightly asked in the debate, he said something along the lines of, well, I don't understand why we have to be cosmologists in order to talk about this evidence. And so yeah. I think those are a couple errors that that we need to watch out for and try to avoid. Good points there. I like that. One thing that when you were talking there about the, the original quote where, where the guy goes, what's that got to do with it? Uh, yeah, I love you how know, he says it. No, he says it in response to, you know, Alice, are you <laughs> Alice menstruating right now? Like I wasn't going to say that, but yeah, right, right. I, was, <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah. So uh, the, the point is that you have to be the guy who's like, what has that got to do with it? Mm. I, that's one way to look at it. You do have to ask, well, what does that have to do with it? And then you can't just let someone say, well, the science says so. You have to say, no, no, you have mm, to ask good. again, no, what does that have to do with it? You can't just um, accept argument from authority. Well, scientists agree that blah, blah. Yeah, but what's their argument? You know, yes. scholars agree. Yeah, what's the scholar's argument? So mm -hmm. if you're appealing to all of these scholars or on something, they could all be wrong. So let's look at the argument that these scholars are, are embracing or, or whatever, or the evidence they're looking at. So what's that got to do with it is the part I would want to draw away from that is that right. in this case someone gives a some outrageous thing like he might have a good reason yeah i, I want to hear it you know as you say um don't just accept the authority of i'm an expert all right, right. so here's another one i'm fuzzy on the whole good bad thing what do you mean bad <laughs> uh, I, I like this one i'll yes. uh, i'll be quick with it the importance of defining terms is 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 what I, it comes in my mind because whenever you're talking about good and bad, when it comes to apologetics and the moral arguments, for instance, uh, that would be a particular thing. Well, what do you mean evil? What do you mean God is immoral or, or, you know, what do you mean by anything? So that would be the important thing is to define terms that anybody's using in an argument. You know, I don't believe in God. Well, how would you define God? What do you mean you don't have faith in it? What is faith? You know, I don't have faith. Well, let's talk about what faith is. So. Even before you get started defining terms, I'm fuzzy on the whole good bet. Anything that's fuzzy, you need to you know, say, what do you mean by this word? Mm, and then good. another another thing I think is important when if we're if talking about defining terms is watching how it's being used. Because someone will use a term one way, but then they'll change it. So you can't just assume that because they used a term one way at the beginning, that they're using it the same way later. Equivocation can happen. And equivocation is basically you change your term halfway through your argument. Definitely define your terms. Ask good questions about what do you mean by that? One thing, too, that I think comes to mind when you're talking about equivocating terms is, is that was one of the big criticisms. Remember years back when Sam Harris came out with the moral landscape? One of the uh, big criticisms, I think, from his detractors were is the fact that he does do a lot of equivocating in there and that that ultimately leads to his argument, his moral argument, not his moral landscape, not being successful. But I thought of this when, you know, I'm fuzzy on the whole good, bad thing. It's been really interesting. Uh, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that I don't know if it was when I had COVID or I was sick with something. And I went through this binge of watching all of Frank Turk's debates. I have no idea why. I just it, it, it's like I watched one and it ended up in a loop and I just ended up watching another one and another one. And two of the debates that he did in particular with uh, David Silverman and with Michael Shermer, it, it was really interesting when he was when Turk himself was pressing them 
on objective morality or when even the audience in some cases were during the Q&A, I would definitely say that they were very fuzzy on the whole good, bad thing as far as mm-hmm. they wanted to. And what I mean by that is, is, for example, Silverman comes to mind in the sense that he wanted to obviously from his position, religion is bad. It's, it's a force that needs to be eradicated. The less religion we have, the better. Right. But then at the same time, he confessed during the debate that we couldn't say that the Holocaust was objectively morally wrong, mm-hmm. that the, the best we could do is, is say that it, it was it was bad. It was terrible, but it's because its majority of opinion agrees that it's terrible. And so to me, that's that's kind of evidence of him being fuzzy on the whole good, bad thing. When, when you see those inconsistencies coming through of like, well, wait a minute, you can't denounce all this stuff as bad. He even accused Turek of lying, at, at lying about him or lying to him. I can't remember which during the debate. And of course, Frank retorted, are you saying that's wrong? And of course, Silverman said, yes. And then Turek was came back and said, but how can it be wrong in a, in a universe where there's no objective morality? And so there's obviously more to it than that. And I'm simplifying it for the sake of the podcast. If you can go back and watch the debate yourself in summation, what I'm saying is, is when you try to deny objective moral facts, you end up looking very fuzzy on the whole good, bad thing. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, Chad, you're up. Do you believe in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the theory of Atlantis? Uh, If there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. Oh, man. Sorry. I, I love that one. I mean, you know, what was hilarious is when we had this idea and you and you said, Chad, just send me like your 12 favorite quotes. Oh, my gosh, man. It was impossible. Like I told my girls, I said at one point I just had to stop because they just kept coming and coming and coming and coming. I know. Like the re- FedEx guy came and he just dropped a script <laughs> on my door. It's like. I know. I, I literally could just send you a, a transcript of the movie and say, here are all my favorite lines. I mean, so anyway, uh, so I'll let you start. I do have a couple thoughts, but go ahead. OK. Context is that uh, Ghostbusters are it was just it was oh. the first montage of the movie and they're right. running around uh, New York and, you know, busting ghosts and they're so tired. So now they've got another employee who's coming on and he's being interviewed by Janine. She, she asks, so how do you believe in all of these things? And she just doesn't care. Uh, and, and, and Winston's just, if it's a steady paycheck in it, I believe anything you say. Now, the, mm. the, as I think about this one, I'm thinking about, hey, these are all things that, that are serious things to believe. You, you would need to, uh, some evidence to believe them. And then he just like, I don't care. He, he doesn't have any, <laughs> his main motivation is not the truth of this, these things. He could care less. He just wants the job. He just wants the paycheck. So to me, it's sort of this reminder that people aren't rational in all of their beliefs. Sometimes they don't care mm. about what they believe. They often want certain things to be true or false, but only based on what it gets them. That's a good point. You know, true or false, uh, who cares? <laughs> Is there a paycheck here? And so I think that sometimes if you're having a conversation with people trying to ascertain how is this person approaching the topic? Are they indifferent? And that's important. Like, I think we we do need to be aware of where people are at when we're talking to them. What is their motivation? Is, do they have a certain motivation to believe certain things? Is their lifestyle really going to 
take a hit if mm. they change their beliefs or their allegiance, so to speak. That's I think that's important. And then the the other thing is this idea of and I'm, it's a total total different point here, but it's just along the same lines of the idea of confirmation bias. Sometimes we could be quick to believe someone on our side, or an atheist can be quick to right. believe someone on their side because we're we want to, our beliefs to be confirmed. Mm-hmm. I hold view X. This is in line with view X. Therefore, I accept it because it's what I want to be the case. And so I think we need to be careful that we watch out for confirmation bias, not just in other people like, oh, they're only accepting certain arguments that support the things they already believe or already want to believe. But we need to do that too. There's a lot of reasons why we would have confirmation bias. And I think that this is like a reminder of that. Mm, that's good. You know, I, I really like what you said there prior, your prior point about, you know, trying to ascertain what is someone's motivation? Because I think that, you know, I know that you and I, knowing you like I do, and of course, knowing myself, I mean, to me, I've just always been of the mindset of, well, it's not really worth believing something if you know it's false. Uh, you know, I want to have good reasons to believe that it's true. But I think it's wrongheaded to assume that everybody um, thinks that way in every area of their life. And and what I mean by that is, is I remember Danielle had a friend who was very steeped in the new age and, uh, she came over to the house and she was kind of in town and she spent the night on our couch because that way she didn't have to sleep in a hotel or whatnot. And we were in a conversation and I just said to her, well, she told me a bit about her new age beliefs and, and, uh, tapping into the universe and, and things of that nature. And I said, well, how do you know those things are true? And I was so surprised because, and and she wasn't being disingenuous. It was like, that didn't, it didn't matter to her whether Mm -hmm. or not they were true. Mm -hmm. It it was very much about, well, you know, I've, I, it's, I've experienced it. It's worked in my life. I mean, I, I, it works. It was very almost pragmatic or experiential. You know, I don't know how to splice it exactly. And so that kind of taught me from there on, well, wow, Chad, you can't assume that everybody values evidence and arguments and things, yeah. you, you know, you have to kind of sometimes even do pre-evangelism and, and explain to people why those things are important. Mm. I think people do tend to believe something for pragmatic reasons, but they mm-hmm. think just because something's working for them, then that's why they assume it's true. You know you know what I mean? But that doesn't mean yeah. it's true because it's working for, for you. Um, the next error you can have after that is to assume it's true because it's working. So, yeah. And I think, too, if somebody's listening and they're thinking, well, what, what do you mean if it works? Doesn't that mean it has to be true? You know, and, and you're having trouble getting your head around what Brian's saying. I mean, I think of our friend Jay Warren Wallace, right? The cold case homicide detective. I mean, he has stated that when he, he was an atheist, he was happy. He was successful. He had a great marriage. He had great relationships with his kids. He was happy. Uh, so if he was just going with the pragmatic approach, right? I mean, he just would have stayed there. But when he when he saw the evidence for Christianity, he knew that he needed to take a step in that direction, not because it was necessarily the most pragmatic thing at the time, but because it was true. Yeah. And then another example of that could be someone being in, say, a movement like the New Apostolic Reformation. And they'll, mm. they will believe that it's true because of the hype, or there's a lot of energy in the church, or there's, mm-hmm. look at, uh, we're praying for lots of people. Yeah, but just because that's so quote unquote working for you or it's exciting or you're getting the the buzz that you want to get from that does not mean that it's true. So you can't just believe that 
for pragmatic reasons. Like, look at how many people are coming to the church. Uh, wow. That's that doesn't validate it. Uh, look at uh, look at we're prophesying. That doesn't validate it. You know, it could be a false prophecy. Yeah. It it could be all kinds of things. So another example. And then I think the the other point I wanted to say is where Winston says, if there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. And of course, I'm I'm not at all saying that this is a lot of people, but but I do think that we this this harkens to me in my mind to the prosperity gospel, oh, you yeah. know, because because people want to get out of Trump financial trouble. They want material things. They hear this false gospel that God wants to make you rich. God wants you to be successful. God doesn't want you to feel any pain. And it's almost like, hey, if there is money in it and health in it, I'll believe anything you say without any critical thought. And so I think that that's another thing we can take away from that quote. Yeah. It just popped in there. What? What just popped in there? All right. That's a good one. I love Vankman's tone there. What? What? what just popped in there so for me this one um it just popped in there this one's for me actually brian doesn't have necessarily a straight up apologetics application it has yeah. more of a christian living application oh okay and I, and I think one can relate that to your apologetics because you want your life to be an apologetic in and of itself right but for me sometimes things and, and this is part of, you know, my kind of lifelong struggle with anxiety, but things do that are upsetting or you know, things I don't want to think about. Sometimes those things do just pop in there. They just pop in my head. And so for me, when I think of this quote, I really sympathize with Ray because it's one of those deals where it's like the harder you try not to think of something, you think of it, right? Like, don't think of a blue elephant. Don't think of a blue elephant. And, and you know, you can't help it. But I think that we can take great comfort in the fact that the Bible is clear that, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that we can find forgiveness for even those thoughts that pop in our head and that we find upsetting or uh, repulsive or whatever they might be. And I think this is part of the, unfortunately, our fallen nature. And so I don't think that I'm saying anything here that everyone's going to go, oh, that never happens to me. And it, and if and if it doesn't, then you should be thanking God. But I, I take a lot of comfort in First John 1, 9. First um, John 1, 9, pretty familiar verse. It says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I know that I'm not actively trying to have these thoughts and I'm doing my best to keep my mind pure in that sense, and to seek God and to abide in Christ and trust that he'll bring about the fruit in me. But when those things that are upsetting or sinful pop in there, if you will, uh, we can seek the forgiveness of, of Christ. And to me, that brings great comfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Well, uh, the apologetic thing I got from that was yeah. uh, that I'm forcing upon the text is... Um, <laughs> Right. We're, we're eisegesis right now, man. If you're in a, if you're talking to people, don't say the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, if, oh, especially if, if something's yeah. like a complex issue or an emotional issue, you know, if you say the first thing that pops in your head or it's kind of like chess, I heard a good quote about chess and it was sort of like, you take your time and you think of the best move you can. And then you think 
some more and come up with a better move. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I uh, like that. So, but so many times, like uh, I'll be playing chess and, and the impatience is just like, oh, well, the first move I see, I'll, I'll take it. There's an impatience we can have when we're in a conversation, when someone is talking, oh, I, I know where he's going with this. And you're, this is going through your head while the discussion or the conversation is going on. Oh, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. And here's the answer to that. Oh, and, right. and if we're doing that, everything is popping into your head while they're talking. If you're earmarking it to come out of your mouth as soon as they stop talking, then I think that there's going to be trouble uh, in the conversation. And I think also it can happen online. You know, you're, you're reading Twitter things and uh, you're disagreeing with this person. And it's not so much that you want to trounce them or something, but you just read 20 other things that you disagree with that is annoying you and everybody else is combative. And then they're like, oh, let me just serve some up or something, you know? And yeah, it, it's just like, as soon as you just do the first thing that pops in there, it's not, not going to be helpful. I would just say taking time to be thoughtful in conversations and not just mm. rushing or being impatient or go get a ray, you know, that sort of a thing. I like that a lot. Yeah. You don't, you definitely don't want to be a Christian that just bellows things out. <laughs> and here's a final quote. Oh yeah. And I thought I would end with this one. Nobody steps on a church in my town. Give us a context for this, Chad. Yeah. So Mr. <laughs> Mr. Stay Puff has just shown up. <laughs> the idea and, that just popped into Ray's head. The idea that just popped into Ray's head. Egon is terrified beyond rational thought. And so they they are really they're standing at the top of the Dana's building and they're watching Mr. Stay Puff just crush cars and walk up the street. And they're kind of in shock. And then Mr. Staypuff makes the terrible error of stepping on a church. And that is a step too far for Dr. Vankman. Look at and, how far uh, cultures come when oh, yeah. Bill Murray back in 84 <laughs> oh, yeah. would have been like, everyone would have said, hey, you don't step on a church. It was like there was a respect for church. That's actually a good okay, point. This is a, this is a sacred place. You know, even if you don't go there. But he's like, still yeah. like, hey, you don't mess with the clergy. You don't mess with the, with the church, you know. Yeah, that that's actually a really that's a really good point. I've never thought of that. Uh, so for me, what what this does is is it just brings to mind for me that the church is the bride of Christ. That's what the Bible calls the church, the bride of Christ. And Jesus is returning for his bride. And I think that as apologists and fellow Christians, we can see a lot of things that fellow believers are doing and saying that can be upsetting. But at the same time, ultimately, we want to have the attitude that we are the bride of Christ. And so we want to tread very carefully when we are insulting or attacking or criticizing Christ's bride, because ultimately it is his bride. And so I think that that's something that we need to be aware of. I, I, and also the other thing I would say, too, is that uh, nobody steps on a church in my town of course, that the indignant attitude there is, is because that is a place of reverence. And so I think of as from an apologist perspective, for me, it's that, you know, nobody, nobody's going to insult my God. Nobody is going to tear down, you know, my Jesus and that I, I am willing to defend him, uh, not because he needs me to, but because that is the way he has ordained things and the, what he's called us to do. And so I want to be willing to do that. And I want to be prepared as first Peter three fifteen and other verses in the Bible command us to do. And uh, so that I can be obedient to him. Yeah. Great, great points. My point I'd throw in there is that 
in a notable way steps in a, on a church in my town would mm -hmm. be sort of like, a, hey, you know what? If the people in our church are unequipped, they're going to get stepped on by the argumentation and the persuasion of the world. And, and if we can equip them, then we can keep them from getting stepped on in a, in a sense. You know, I so like that. from the apologetics point of view, those of us in this realm who are into it and, and uh, are a little further down the road who can do a little bit of equipping in, in small ways or big ways, we should because that'll protect the church. It'll protect the body of Christ from we're getting stepped on. If there are, there are pastors who listen to the podcast too, you are already wearing so many hats, juggling so many balls, and and that's completely understand, uh, understandable. But I, at the same time, I wouldn't be afraid to let somebody in your congregation who is versed in apologetics to have the opportunity to teach a Sunday school class or to present on maybe a Wednesday night or you know, when you have another gathering. And then I would say too, if you attend a church and you feel frustrated because there isn't more apologetics and there isn't more equipping going on, then meet with your pastor and, and see if there's something that you could start. Um, I think one of the th mistakes I made early in my Christian walk is apologetics was kind of one of the central things that God used to draw me to Jesus. And so I thought, I can't believe everybody, why isn't the pastor doing this all the time? And kind of had this overzealous attitude. And now I look and say, gosh, pastors, like I said, wear so many hats. And so come alongside the pastor and say, hey, I'm, I'm learning this curriculum, or I did this certificate at Biola, or I, I just read this book by so-and-so, and I'd love to present on it, or I'd love to do a Sunday school on it. And come alongside and help him be part of the solution instead of just complaining. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's coming from somebody who fell into that trap. And so please don't hear that as me being condemning. I'm just saying don't make the same mistake I did. Well, Chad, it's very amazing to see how much great apologetic content we could squeeze out. Right? Only only seven Ghostbusters quotes. More reason to believe that it is an amazing film. And listener, if you've gotten this far and you have quotes that you're like, oh man, you missed this quote. You know, if you're having in trouble interpreting Ghostbusters, we will show you the meaning of those quotes as well. Just email us at podcast at apologetics315.com. Well, that wraps it up for the podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to 100 episodes since the reboot. Thanks for listening and for your support. So see you next time. And remember, we're ready to believe you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetics stuff over at Truthbomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.